The battle of Britain is about to begin. Lead Pursuit Podcast. Tonight, we're really going to stir the pot for Blood Red Skies. And how are we going to do that? Well, we're going to talk about issues that everybody in the ready room has probably had an opinion on, commented on, yelled at somebody else for their take on the rules, the ideas, the cards. Uh, We're going to talk about X-Planes. Now, of course, you've got me, your host for the Lead Pursuit Podcast. We've got Brett out there. Brett, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Hey, guys. You are the resident lead pursuit subject matter expert for X-Planes. But you know, tonight we have the Ready Rooms expert in X-Planes, none other than Roger Garish. Roger, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Doug. And uh, hello to you too, Brett. It's good to have both you guys on the podcast tonight. Now, this has been a controversial issue. I know people are going to get their virtual panties in a wad, no matter what we say about X-Planes, no matter what we cover, what we don't cover, the airplanes we say should be in the game, shouldn't be in the game, whatever, people are going to lose their minds. So with that preface, before we delve into X-Planes and things that will make people angry, uh, let's talk just a little bit about what we've seen around the Blood Red Skies world. Brett, you've been uh, working on some 109Gs, I think, maybe, question mark. Yeah, it's funny. So most folks know, if you've listened the last uh, month or two that I've moved, so I'm in an apartment now, but I grabbed a bunch of my my planes that I had on my table to uh, continue working on. Anyway, so I have completed, essentially, some 109Gs, but all my decals got packed away. So <laughs> I had to order some new decals so I could finish these jokers off. But hey, here's the good news. I just talked to Kevin at Mich- Miscellaneous Minis, and he uh, I believe he's going to put together a uh, a decal sheet for just um, the uh, aces from Stalingrad. So uh, that's Excellent. kind of a neat thing. So I'm waiting on those to get uh, to get here so I can wrap these up. Well, good. Well, yeah, I I ran into the funny decal problem, and I told Roger about this. We laughed uh, earlier in the week. I uh, unpacked three of the original. Uh, boxes of Spitfires, Yaks, and 109s to send to none other than Trevor, my commission painter, for some work. And I said, you know what? I'll just include the decals that are in the box because I don't need any specific units, anything fancy. And I forgot they were the sticker decals. (laughs) And so as I'm throwing this in a box to send to Trevor, my quick message to Trevor was, hey, and while you're at it, hit up Kevin. (laughs) I don't care what squadrons they are. Find something cool, something you want to do. But that was a funny moment where I had I had forgotten because all of my other kit had had the uh, follow-on Warlord decals that, that I liked. They were a little bit thick, looked, took a little bit more burn down to get them in the panel lines, but uh, certainly were not the stickers. So that was a, a rude awakening in the decal world, but that's fine. 
moving on from that. So what have we seen that's coming out? Uh, Wait a second, oh, go, Doug. Yeah, sorry. Oh, we, we probably have like another 54 minutes to give uh, Roger a chance to discuss all the things he's been printing and painting. I, I didn't want to talk about that. I'm, 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 <laughs> skipping, I'm skipping Roger. I don't want to talk to Roger in his 3D printing because he's going to make me want a printer. Let me make it very simple and straightforward there. Uh, okay, Roger, what have you printed lately? Um, <clears throat> well, just about everything that I can get my hands on. Um, I was about to say, is, is it easier to say what's the short list of things you haven't printed? Is that easier? Well, well yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, with, uh, with COVID and lockdown and the inability to game, and I'm, I'm going to have to say now, I've probably not gamed with, you know, face-to-face with people for nearly nine months now. You know, I need some sort of uh, other, other activity. And I've always been interested in 3D printing, but been scared by what people say about, you know, how, how, how difficult it is to set up and the like. But I, I went off and bought a resin printer and just decided to learn through the, uh, you know, through the internet, YouTube, how to do it. And then I found there were so many of uh, these STL 3D models that were actually sitting out there. Um, and because we've been playing around with, uh, you know, Doug and I and, and Brett, we've been playing around with jets and looking at Vietnam and things like that, I've obviously wanted to try and find some models for those. So. Over the past few months or so, I found a guy who's on a um, on a site called Colts uh, 3D. Eric Jenner, I think his name is, or that's his uh, that's his that's his uh, his ID on that. And he's just got so many one two hundred scale, beautifully detailed uh, jets covering sort of you know the nineteen fifties right up to to the modern day. So yeah, so my table's covered in MiG fifteens, MiG seventeens, MiG. That's a terrible, terrible problem to have. It, 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 it is. <laughs> And at the same time, there's another guy out there who I think you'll often see posting his, uh, his stuff up on the, uh, on the ready room, Roman Troyan. Uh, he's got a Patreon site, and he's been producing some lovely stuff recently, the F-19s yeah, yeah, and the like. His stuff uh, looks good, and it, that, the combo of him and then having Steve Toth as a, as a close uh, <laughs> resource has made me almost buy a printer, but thankfully I think I'm outsourcing that to Steve and, and others of his ilk. <laughs> that can print it all for me because I just don't have the space and the time right now in between moving and everything else. Yeah, and the, the, pro- the problem is as well, of course, now I've got this huge, and I mean literally a huge pile of resin, and I've just got to sit down and paint it and get the decals for it. And just on what you've been talking about with Misc Mini, you know, we, we've had a bit of a blow in the UK recently in the sense that due to the joys of Brexit, um, uh, they can't, you know, Miss Minnie have said that they're not going to be fulfilling orders in the UK at the moment simply because they have to fill in some really difficult VAT registration stuff. So uh, it's such a shame. You, you because, say uh, difficult. You yeah. say difficult. The process isn't that hard. And I'm, and I'm not saying this to pick on Kevin. I, I totally get it as a small business guy. Every hour you spend filing paperwork with somebody else or calculating something or making your web store unique to people from the UK. I get it. And and I kind of laugh because I see the same thing when I go to Brigade Models and their web store that's unique based on where you are. And so even when you start to surf the website, you have to tell it where in the world you are. Um, but maybe I'm just used to that between GW, Battle Foam, some of these other big companies. Um, I, I know it makes it a pain in the ass, but uh, I don't think it's insurmountable. Now, the good news, as as you probably know, is we have a man on the inside. Well, not really. We have, we have a guy who's trying to crack the code, uh, not only on distributing it, uh, you know, the properly distributing the, the decals, but on handling the process and finding out if there's a way we can streamline the process for Kevin such that he can take orders 
and maybe uh, with a little additional shipping monies, um, it be shipped to people that will then make sure the proper uh, things are levied. So we'll see. We'll see how that all works out. I hope so, because there was a palpable sense of panic on the ready room regarding the UK members when we found out, because, you know, Kevin has been brilliant and this the speed of turnaround of orders and the quality of what he's provided has been absolutely excellent. And the thought of that being cut off and, was Well, I would was never, I would never willingly tell someone to break all the rules, but maybe Kevin's greeting card company is what needs to be started up that has a lot of, a lot of people receiving greeting cards in the UK. <laughs> we'll find out. We'll find out how those decals make it there. All right, so let's move on quickly uh, so we can get to tonight's main topic here in a bit. I know Brett was super excited, and I say super excited, uh, about the Ace card that came out at Christmas. Brett, tell us about the Wild Bill Kelso card. Oh, you mean the greatest fire, fighter pilot who ever lived? What a, <laughs> exactly. That was, that, was a, that was a fun one-off, right? It wasn't my idea, so I can't claim credit for it, but man— uh, for those who have not seen it, uh, Christmas time we put out a ace card for folks at the uh, at the Facebook page and the Lead Pursuit Podcast page, and also in Ready Room for Wild Bill, Captain Wild Bill Kelso, the uh, famous P forty Warhawk ace from the uh, the uh, what was it the the Battle of uh, California yeah, right? exactly <laughs> the Battle of. Uh... I'm trying to remember the the joke, but uh, yeah, exactly. Southern yeah. California Battle of Hollywood, the Japanese Hollywood, attack yeah. on Hollywood. Hollywood, yeah. <laughs> it, uh, it, it's a uh, it, it kind of up there now. It ranks for me up there with uh, Die Hard as a Christmas movie, the movie 1941 now because <laughs> nice. it is a Christmas movie. So I, I might have to add that to my queue each year. I don't consider 1941 a Christmas movie, but you have a good point. It, it certainly is in that sense. Yeah, that was that was funny to release that card, and and I I laugh. I think the discussion went. Uh, something like, hey, we ought to release this for the fans. And my smart-ass comment was, we have fans. <laughs> I know we have people who listen to us out of sheer mercy and want to find out what stupid thing we're going to say next. I wouldn't call them fans. So thanks to all our fans, people who actually cared that we released the card. I think it's pretty funny. Maybe one of these days it'll get printed. Who knows? Uh, that's always an, another discussion for another time. Uh, well, you know, talking about cards kind of tied into tonight's topic, uh, there are a lot more cards hitting the ready room that uh, that have been done, that look great, that have somewhat controversial stats, uh, and we'll figure out where to put those out. Brett, uh, Roger, either of you want to say anything about some of these uh, hypothetical, unofficial, how many caveats can I put in front of the word beta cards that we have? Yeah, let, let me just say, um, the first thing that comes to mind on this conversation, I think part of the reason why we're having this episode is the amount of... Uh, uh, controversy or just general interest on this topic really surprised me. Uh, I think some some of the uh, some of the motivation for this conversation comes from a post I put up on the Do three three five. Just a cool airplane, right? And that was the intent for posting a little information about it on Ready Room. But it sparked like I don't know a thread of like a hundred comments. Everything from Wow, what a cool plane to this would never have existed. It, I, you know, it every sparked Roger spectrum. rage quitting for at least 12 hours that I know of, Roger. <laughs> How would you describe that DO-335 post? Well, I, I just thought it was, uh, I thought it was incredible. It was, like, um, it was like throwing a big rock in the middle of a pool and seeing the ripples that were caused by it. Um, and clearly, lots of people have different viewpoints on this. Um, I was a bit taken aback because, from my perspective, the Red Skies 
is a game. It's not a historical document. It's not um, you know a simulation per se. It's a game. So you know if you're playing with Wildcats or you're playing with you know Do three three fives. To me, as long as you and your opponent are quite happy or got an interest in that, then then, then why not? But it was it was the sort of like oh no thou shalt not post nothing about something that might be a uh, you know a Luftwaffe forty six type aircraft in this ready room because it may somehow distract or dilute people's concentration on World War Two, and I thought well you know. This is a discussion side about things that fly around and shoot at each other. Exactly, and, and a rule set that is admittedly generalized, and like you said, not not a simulation. So, yeah, well, let's use that as a as a direct segue for going into the main topic at hand. Let's talk a little bit about X planes, and let's let's define what we're talking about because as Roger and I discussed before we got on the podcast. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of a stickler for words mean things and, and precision in terminology. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of different ways you can define an X-plane. And there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of emotional baggage, I think, tied up with some of these definitions. You know, obviously, when I say X-plane, then airplanes that carried an X designator or XP or XB, you know, obviously, that's an X-plane. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I am quite capable of figuring that one out. And there may or may not be a reason to put those airplanes into Blood Red Skies, but Blood Red Skies is mostly a, a combat game. It's not a flight test game. It's not um, you're not pitching an X-15 against a uh, you know a MiG-17 over the skies of uh, of China. You know things that never happened. So it's it's not about flight test. But um, you know there are aircraft that carried X designations as they approached combat. So I think that's one thing we have to you know, kind of caveat. Um, then, then there's what I call the for those of us that are old video game players, the secret weapons of the Luftwaffe. You know, um, as Breda said, usually usually those are called Japanese German designs that are considered these quote secret weapons. Uh, that uh, some of them you know made it to to fruition, some of them didn't really. What what are y'all's thoughts on? Is there a line to draw there between uh, paper planes, as some call them, and the uh, the actual fielded uh, secret weapons? I think. I think one of the interesting things is that, especially when we're talking in terms of paper planes, those that never actually got to prototype stage or, heaven forbid, even flew, um, you've got to take everything you see about performance and the like and what it could or couldn't do with a pinch of salt because, obviously, that designer is going to put the best possible light on his, on his aircraft. So when you're thinking of deploying something into Blood Red Sky, say, for instance, I think you have to make that sort of decision about whether you are going to reflect that sort of um, you know, glowing view of what this thing could do, and it flies around the sky, out turns everything, out shoots everything, or you actually reflect on probably what it might have been like in uh, combat with untried technology, with, um, with uh, unreliable... Um, uh, equipment and materials, engines and the like, and do you say, well, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to actually knock this thing down a bit because it's unproven. Um, we don't know what it would really would have been like. It would probably be a hell for the pilot to fly, a hell to maintain. So that's the way I look at it: is you either do a sort of dream world view of X planes and you, you you portray them as as in that form, or you try and put some sort of reality on it and say that these were probably just death traps. Yeah. <laughs> Brett, what are your thoughts on that? I, I think what Roger was just describing is sort of the heart of all the um, strong feelings one way or the other when you start talking about X-planes because, you know, many of these aircraft, few if any, flew 
or flu in combat. And some of them, like we talked about already, like the, the feel were, um, you know, maybe they were limited combat, almost like experimental, like testing, if you will, like in operation. So they had all kinds of problems or didn't have ideal components yet. You know, all those kinds of things hadn't been shaken out yet. And, and so folks will use that, uh, you know, that the, the facts about how it actually performed under those circumstances and say, no, well, it was only good for this. It could only do this. Or some folks will take the other end of the spectrum and say, yeah, but if, you know, if it had had more time and they had gotten this or that worked out, then it would have done this. And so you have this sort of argument about what it, where it should land in terms of performance for, say, something like the card or the traits. And that's where all the, con- I think a lot, most of the discussion comes up when you get into these things. And I think it's just, the whole thing is fun, though, because uh, I think everybody could agree that there's a lot of interesting designs, whether they flew or not, that are out there. And it's an intriguing subject. I think one. Oh, sorry. Good. I, I think one of the other interesting things in which you touched on, you were getting to touch on there, Brett, was the fact as well that remembering again that Blood Red Skies is a miniatures game, and some of these models just look damn cool. They just, they, you know, so the asymmetrical types, the push-a-pull type aircraft, all those sort of things. You know, they are actually something a little bit different, a bit of a challenge to paint, um, and, and, and just quite exciting in their own right. So, you know, it, it, the miniature draw towards explains is certainly one of the things that pulls me in that direction because they just look so. Well, <laughs> I, so I think that's a that's a huge point to bring up, and and I've talked about it a few times that for me, there's a I really love good diesel punk style architecture style vehicles art things like that and there these secret weapons really fall into that category in a lot of a lot of cases um flying wings asymmetrical uh engine layouts pusher props like you're talking about all those all those kind of things really play into that look and i enjoy that and that's in fact why i also have dust 1947 stuff uh, is because I really enjoy that that view and that artistic style. Um, and I, I think there's a, a problem when people want to look down at one or other uh, style of, of why you game and why you model, uh, because the fact is it's, it's a pretty broad brush for what we do in Blood Red Skies. And I would even say that that kind of goes to do we model uh, or do we play ahistorical scenarios? Absolutely. So... So why would someone get bent about people flying XP-80s in the Italian theater uh, and actually getting them into a combat, you know, uh, kind of thing, or flying XP-80s against ME-262s? Yeah, um, I mean, the, 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 other, the other aspect to, to take into account here as well is the, um, I mean, a lot of focus on X-planes, and when we're talking about, you know, secret weapons of the Luftwaffe type thing, it is very much focused on what, primarily the Germans, or to a certain extent, the Japanese could have fielded, you know, had the war gone on that additional, you know, length of time. And I think one of the problems sometimes you have when you also talk about, I'm talking specifically about the sort of the Luftwaffe 46, the Wunderwaffe, or whatever you want to call them, is that there is also a resistance from certain people, quite understandably, that, um, I don't know, championing, 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 high technology for what was a terrible and brutal regimes um, is a bit of a problem. It's, it's not PC. You shouldn't really do that. And um, I can understand where certain people come from on that. But at the same time, 
as with a lot of things in war game, I think you just have to and, and things you just have to suspend your disbelief a little bit. Just because oh, yeah. you'd say you'd want to fly a Horton two two nine or something like that, or you want to drive a E one hundred tank around in a game of bolt action or something like that, doesn't mean that you're a Nazi fanboy or anything like that. It's 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 quite often it's just interest in the technology and 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 yes, you, and as long as you understand that you know what we fought against in the Second World War was bad, and thankfully we, you know, we, 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 we got rid of it, you know, to, to, to recreate or be fascinated or look at the desperate technology is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. You, you, have, to, you have to be, you know, you have to be even-handed. You know, one thing I think, if you, take a, if you take any time to look at the spectrum of experimental planes and prototypes that are out there, you could break them down into several different categories. I mean, th there is a spectrum, right? So you have aircraft that were essentially became production aircraft later after World War II, but just, you know, the war ended before they were fully operational in World War II. But then there were also, you know, the other end of the spectrum where they were just drawings that, you know, ideas on paper designs that never even had a, a flying a flying prototype and, and everywhere in between. I think you can sort of break down the spectrum of these hypothetical aircraft into you know, kind of different chunks and, and, uh, I don't, I don't know if there, there's not a right answer. I don't think, you know, cause it's like you said, it's, it's a game. You do what makes you feel good. Uh, it, but there, I think if you're looking at a broader audience that plays the game, what do you think is the kind of the sweet spot for perhaps hypothetical prototypes or hypo, I mean, hypothetical aircraft, is there like a cutoff or a number of aircraft that actually flew or whether they actually flew operationally? What, what do you think, Roger? Um, I think if you ask 10 people, you'll probably get 10 different answers on that. You know, um, you get 11 because at least yeah. one of us will change okay, our mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. And I think I, I sort of, before I sort of define, um, I'm, I'm also saying to myself that I think, you know, when you think of Blood Red Skies in terms of a sandbox, as well as, you know, sort of you're playing historical scenarios where aircraft are contemporary. You know, you do get people in tournaments and they do play, you know, Spitfires versus Mustangs and Yak-1s versus, you know, late war aircraft or whatever. Um, so I have no problems in some respects of, you know, whatever you want to throw in there, as long as somebody agrees to it. But um, again, the, the, the way I look at the split is that there is um, those aircraft most of these aircraft, if you're looking from the from the Axis side of it, um, could potentially have seen combat had the war lasted another six months, another 12 months, or, or, or whatever. Um, so from Luftwaffe stuff, I tend to say, well, okay, what I would allow myself is something that at least has flown. I wouldn't necessarily have the paper planes in there, stuff that never even got to a prototype stage. But aircraft such as the, you know, the, the 335, which did fly with our evaluation units, the 162, and the, the Horton 229, I mean, there, there, were, there was two or three flights of that, um, admittedly two of them ended up in crashes, um, but they were actually proven to be able to get into the air. Um, the same way as the, you know, recent release or discussion about the, um, the Shinden, the, um, um, the canard Japanese fighter. Um, that did, you know, that, that, that flew for, I think, a total of 45 minutes. So, again, I'd sort of allow that into there. But something that's totally paper, 
um, I would sort of treat with a pinch of salt and I would probably come class that as something separate. I'd, I'd, I'd pigeonhole it somewhere else. Well, let's talk about how we could divide those because there, there is a trait, unfortunately, only really designed for multi-engine uh, aircraft uh, in airstrike for, you know, planes that are just now being introduced. So there's the optional rule of teething problems where you, you reduce the pilot skill by one uh, for that new semi-experimental, somewhat new airplane being introduced. But that really the game talks about that for full production airplanes in their first year of use. Uh, what are some other traits or rules y'all have proposed to help bend these aircraft into something that was innovative and actually flew in combat and used, something that had done some test flights but really was still experimental um, versus obviously something that is a wild fantasy but sure fun to play? <laughs> mm. I, mean, I mean, I think we've got, <clears throat> we've got some that we've, um, that we could apply the existing ones. I mean, I'm thinking in terms of things like uh, compression issues and and the like, and, and, and looking at some of the other sort of um, vulnerable traits. I mean, you, you, well, sorry, Ben said vulnerable. I said negative traits. Just said, you're you're going to make yeah. people so angry by saying the word vulnerable. People I know, I know, I know, I know. Vulnerable, and, and, vulnerable, vulnerable, vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. And, and the other thing I'll always say here, because I think it's the first time I've spoken on this on this podcast, is that uh, and, and having been involved in when we've been putting the cards together, doctrine cards and things like that, and the naming conventions of of the traits. Clearly, somewhere down the line, we've looked at that and said that name doesn't really describe what the trait really represents. Poor quality. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah well, exactly, exactly. And more, it's more about really if you look at the actual wording of the card rather than the actual title that sort of gives that sort of sort of indication. But by and by, that's just something I've just, just something brought up there. But no, something like compressions issues and. Um, what we were doing for um, Vietnam, I think, oh, no, for Korea, I think, was rough ride and the like. Of, 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 because a lot of these aircraft were, I mean, either aerodynamically quite revolutionary and therefore probably wouldn't work, or many of them were sort of pushing towards the sort of transonic boundaries and the like. And you know, what was experienced. By the early jets, you know the compression issues, the the the, uh, the the poorness of handling, the ability finding it hard to control. It's a question of saying, well, can you use some of those traits to actually represent those aircraft? One of the things that we we did when we were we, just to back up a little bit, we've got a little bit of a collaborative effort going on right now to kind of flesh some of these ideas out and maybe come up with some cards that we could release on Lead Pursuit for some of these uh, uh, strange and unusual aircraft, but uh, we were kind of batting around this idea of, you know, how do you account for all of this in terms of existing traits like those? And we actually landed on this idea of almost making a class to itself for these, for this, uh, I don't know, genre of aircraft, if you will, much like uh, jet is a uh, I don't know, it's a trait, of course, but jet is, you sort of think of it as a separate class of aircraft, if you will. Maybe like biplane, right? Biplane clearly is a trait, but you could sort of assign that to a specific class of aircraft. So we thought of something called hypothetical, right? So a hypothetical class of cards. And like, uh, you know, all jet cards come with the jet trait, hypothetical planes would come with this hypothetical trait, which essentially just adds a boom trait chit that can't be removed at deployment for any squadron of these aircraft and that at least gets you started in terms of like uh kind of nerfing you know giving the nerf bat to the uh, squadron you may be fielding if you're choosing to field these sort of wild aircraft and then of course 
beyond that in thinking hard on what traits the aircraft should have beyond its uh, known stats would be, you know, things like Roger's talking about with, you know, would rough ride be appropriate or, you know, some of these other things, but it's certainly a work in progress. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I understand why you guys did that. The, the gamer in me thinks that's such a sellout because uh, when I play games like Ogre or GEV, I don't have a hypothetical trait for the Ogre Mark V tank <laughs> rolling down the battlefield. Um, there, I think sometimes when you try to 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 please the historical crowd, you also need to put the caveat in there of remember this is your game, and if you really want to fly P51s intercepting Horton flying wings, get rid of the hypothetical trait and play your hypothetical game uh, because otherwise you're really you're penalizing the person who wants to wants to try some of these things and and yeah, like any game balancing so we've argued probably I don't know how many times in the last month over aircraft traits balancing and, and we'll talk about some of that maybe at the end of the show but there's there's a point where it, when you're doing the hypothetical things I think you need to be careful about nerfing it and more more of put it out as a beta kind of thing. Try these stats, see if you like them. If you don't, make your own card. You know, Roger, what do you think about that? I, I agree, and I think you know it should be wrote large that this, if any of these sort of traits or, or doing this, this nerfing is entirely optional. It is something that if you feel that if you feel so offended that something that never flew, uh, was never proven in combat, is performing as it as it's as 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 was written on the tin then, you know, you can use that, and that's fine, and as your opponent agrees with you, and that is absolutely fine. But, you know, if you don't want to, if you want to do the proper, you know, here we are, we are at war in 1946, and I want my, you know, Mustangs to be taken on the Hortons or whatever, or my vampires will join in as well, then that, that's perfectly fine as well. It, it should be very much an optional thing. Well, I, I think there was a great corollary to this, uh, that the... The guys over on the Anything But Ones podcast, uh, they, when they were talking about house ruling and, and things that when you when you have a you create a house rule to take away another rule that was meant to prevent people from having to house rule, <laughs> you're you're back at zero again, and and you didn't need the rule to start in the in the first place. Uh, one of the I, I think you hit on it that people have to be able to take the game and play what they want to with it and do what they want and not feel super constrained that they're breaking the game by either turning on or turning off one of these these ways of leveling the playing field. Um, I, I think there's also a lot of uh, conceit. Is that the word I want to use? I, th I think there's a, a lot of misplaced faith in a lot of what we read about, even these aircraft that actually made it to a flying status, whether it's the ME-262, whether it's the 163, whether it's, you know, the DO-335, any one of those airplanes there's a ton of conflicting information about. It. I mean, it's it's really no different than reading the the results of the pilots flying the MiG-15s, MiG-17s, and MiG-19s when we exploited them in the U.S. for the first time. There's there's diverse thought there that's different than what the Russians said about their own aircraft. Mm, mm, no, I, I agree, and I think I think an interesting um, way of looking at this is if you look at certain post-war U.S. Um, prototypes, um, which. Many, many were clearly heavily influenced by um, German aeronautical thinking, aerodynamical, aerodynamics thinking, um, specifically tailless designs. And, you know, you only got to look at the likes of, you know, the Cutlass, the Sky Ray and various other um, sort of tailless jets as such. How 
difficult they were to fly, even with technology that was sort of like five to ten years further on from that. Um, so you know, just 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 look at look look at those look at those aircraft and uh, and see how difficult they were at that time, and that, that sort of gives I think an idea about what they might have been like. Yes, the aircraft could have got into the air fine, but if it ended up killing every single pilot who, who went up, then it was a waste of time. I mean, the 80s, well, yeah, yeah. And, and you also hit on there's there's mistakes people make because of transference, as we call it, in aviation safety, because they're they're used to certain knobs and and dials and and levers working certain ways in their airplanes, and all of a sudden in a in a test environment, they take out this uh, airplane to exploit, and things don't work the same uh, as their allied aircraft. Uh, that sometimes they say this thing is is way too difficult to figure out. Yet you ask the German pilot, and he goes, "Oh, and that's the same place that it was in the 109." Or or the example we've always talked about uh, with the avionics inside a MiG. Every dial and every indicator and every knob in the early MiGs was all in the same place. Why? So you could move from airplane to airplane to airplane seamlessly, and it was not at all like Western cockpit. So Westerners would sit down and go. What is this tiny, funny little radar display that I have a, a weird joystick on the side next to my throttle to, to steer? Yeah, you know, totally different than what the Western systems were. But it made sense to the people that flew it because it was like their other systems. So I think there's there's a – you're fraught with peril when you read some of these uh, exploitation reports. And I think there's always a – taking it with a grain of salt how little exploitation we did on some platforms like the, the 163 – where literally we towed it behind a B-29 bomber and dropped it, and I forget from the altitude, 25,000, 30,000, whatever feet. And I think we did that twice, maybe three times, and, and glided it back in. And that was the extent of our flight testing. So everything that a Western pilot has written about that uh, was written off of those flights. So not necessarily the same as actually having flown it, take off to land, fired the rocket motor, and had to, had to deal with all those things. And and, and and I think another thing as well is is, uh, is remembering again that, that these designs were created in a time of total desperation. I mean, the, amount, the amount of time from you know uh, potentially. I mean, we look at the Hortons and the uh, and the and the one six two for instance. The, the 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 short space of time between we need a people's fighter and actually delivering something was incredibly short, but. You know, probably an aeroplane that was designed for what Hitler used to fly. They were saying. I mean, yeah, in, in some yeah, ways, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But 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 the real killer was the glue didn't work. So, exactly. You know, the, the film of the guy doing his test flight in front of the Luftwaffe hierarchy, wing simply falls off because the glue doesn't work. It's that's, that, 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 I guess that's another thing. You know, one of these designs had it been given the chance to mature, be tr properly tested. I mean, you, you, you look, for instance, at something like the uh, Vampire. Um, people will say, well, you know, the Vampire first flew in 1943, and the first production Vampire Ones actually came off the production line somewhere about the middle of 1945. Um, but they didn't actually come into full squadron service until 1947. And the simple reason for that was that there was no reason to produce them so quickly. The war was ending. There's no need, there's no need for that. Had the war you know, looked like it was going to go on for some length of time, then, you know, the, the specific emphasis would have gone on there and the vampire one probably would have flown in World War Two. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's uh, take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some specific X-planes. And I know Brett has a long laundry list, so I'll apologize in advance to the listeners for the podcast. This may take a while. We'll be right back.
And we're back. So we're going to talk through a couple different airplanes. And no, I'm not going to go through the whole 50 airplane list or so that Brett made for me. So thank you, Brett. I appreciate the list. Let's go by country. Well, we alluded to secret weapons of the Luftwaffe. We've we've talked about several of them already. German X-planes of note. Which ones did you and Roger really churn over? Which ones did you really spend a lot of time saying, this is something people want to play? Hmm. Well, you know, I have a soft spot in my heart for the DO-335. We already mentioned it. And that That's only because it caused hate and discontent in the ready room. We know it, you're an evil, dark person. Hey, it was innocent enough. I mean, I always just thought it was a super cool plane without even really knowing much about it, just from seeing photos and stuff. Actually, even be, I saw a um, a video of a really large-scale RC DO-335 and fell in love with it without even knowing anything about it. I was like, what the hell is that? That's amazing. You know, and there's a lot I like about the Luftwaffe aircraft. I mean, things as simple as the colors and the camouflage pattern, I just find really super appealing. Anyway, seeing this working large scale RC uh, DO-335 with the retractable gear and the pusher, you know, it's just uh, amazing looking to me. That's where the inspiration comes from and makes me like, what the heck is that? I want to find out more. So that's kind of where all this starts. But th- if I had to say one thing about that particular plane, it just looks so cool and interesting and innovative. I want to know more. And as I start learning more about it, of course, you find out things like, oh, man, there was, you know, like three dozen of them made and some limited combat operations. So, you know, it kind of hits that sort of legitimacy check mark for me. But uh, anyway, just kind of an interesting aircraft. So that's certainly one of them. That's sort of, I have a love affair in a lot of ways for me. The DO-335 is sort of like the poster child for this idea. You know, there was some, you know, certainly some uh, flying uh, aircraft. There was certainly some limited combat operational use. So, you know, it kind of checks all the blocks for me. And, um, but there's a few, uh, and I didn't come up with these on my own. This is a collaborative effort, but for the Germans, we've got the, uh, the Bakken BA-349, uh, that's the Natter. Uh, which actually flew um, the Horton Geo two two nine. That's that. Uh, now that's one of my favorites. Oh, that's such, the Geo two two nine or the HO two two nine. Have you choose to to designate it? Right. Uh, that is a cool airplane. You know, Roger can help me out. I think a lot of people may refer to this as a Horton nine, right? Yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah. Horton Horton being the designers, and then I think when it went to production, they picked on the uh, the Gota company to actually Correct. produce it. So you will see people will call it the, um, the you know, the HO229 and some people call it the GO229. I think sources GO229. say it is the HO229, which yeah. I also say is wrong because it's the GO229 when it's produced. <laughs> but sources yeah. say. <laughs> yes, 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 I agree. Now, Messerschmitt had some interesting designs, but I'm not real familiar with them. Roger, you know much about the, uh, the Messerschmitt interesting aircraft? Well, um, <clears throat> The 263, which was really a, um, an upgraded version of the 163, so it was um, much more traditional aircraft in the sense that it's uh, retract- and retractable undercarriage, it carried a lot more fuel, um, it was just, you look at everything that might be potentially wrong with the 163 and we just make that a little bit better. So there was that um, on the drawing board and I think it flew as far as glider tests, so similar as you're talking, Brett, about B-29s towing a 163, I think they, you know, they, they, they towed one of these 263s just to check it's aerodynamically sound. So you'll be really looking at something that is a, a slightly advanced version of the 263. And of course, whether it's sort of like an incredible point defense interceptor like that, with no range whatsoever, you basically fire it straight up at the bomber stream coming overhead. You know, how that sort of fits into Blood Red Sky, you just got to say, mm, you know. But, but and again, damn interesting, looks fun. Um, 
what else on Mesh Smith? There was various um, upgrades, um, rather new designs to the 262, because they saw the 262, you know, was, was, a, was a pretty good aircraft, had its problems, but more down to, you know, uh, uh, inferior materials being available. Um, so there was um, 262 variants with much more swept wings. Um, uh, there were V-tail planes, um, hypothetically upgraded engines and the like. So uh, there is th these various 262V or P variants that were, that were out there. And then the one that I quite like is uh, the Messerschmitt P1101. And I think that got as far as them building the fuselage. But my God, it was a variable geometry aircraft. So, you know, again, like the sort of Sukhois, you know, is what you basically turned a handle to get it. There was no uh, automatic control or whatever. But um, that could have flown quite easily um, sometime around about the middle of the middle of 1945 had, or well, late 1945, had they um, had they uh, had they developed it. And I think there is a there is an American X plane that is more or less basically that that P1101. Um, I can't remember the, which X it was now. But, uh, you know, it was tried out, so it probably would have worked. So, again, it's because it's an, it's an interesting-looking aeroplane. It's just, it's just different, and that, 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 well, that's and why I, I like it. I think there's a bit of a conceit there when we say, oh, we shouldn't model these planes because they never left the prototype stage or they never left the, the full-size mock-up uh, stage. The Germans at the end in the emergency fighter programs were throwing every bit of technology and design expertise they had at the wall to see what would stick. And unfortunately, things were chosen that didn't stick very well. Um, but the fact is, much of those same crazy designs we saw uh, on both sides of, of the Iron Curtain in the next 20 to 30 years. We saw variable geometry wings. We saw pivoting wings. We saw, um, you know, some of the the tailless aircraft we saw flying wings and and given enough flight test time i have to I have to say that i would believe the germans would have worked out some of the kinks and some of them would have returned as flyable production designs some mm. of them probably would have died on the cutting room floor just like a lot of the american xp series but mm. each and every one of those contributed to the overall knowledge of the american aerospace industry and what did and what didn't work and it's always ironic when you come back to projects years later after we abandoned flying wing bombers and then, you know, 30 years later, we build the B-2 bomber. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I, I mentioned a collaborative effort. You know, uh, there's a handful of us that are committed to making some beta cards to represent these aircraft. And we're talking about nearly three dozen X-planes from virtually every major faction, uh, even Italians. Uh, uh, anyway... So Don't get ahead of yourself. We're not talking about the Italians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, just to say that we've we've kind of come up with a list. And like I mentioned, that spectrum, this list includes a spectrum too, I mean, among the factions. And and I think that the uniting thing of all the aircraft on this list is they're just super interesting for one reason or another. They either look super cool or they're fascinating in some way because of their design. And um, there's a lot to kind of dive into. Absolutely. So let's jump over to our next country, our favorite country, the finest aviation industry in the world ever, forever, and will always be so, uh, the United States. <laughs> so <laughs> let's talk about U.S. X-Series aircraft, because they are all over the page. And part of that is, well, because we won the war, so our design kept going on, and then we got back into a conflict in Korea, and then we're designing things that would then later see the technology use in Vietnam or, or follow on after that. Holy crap, where do you begin with U.S. X-Series aircraft, Brett? 
Well, maybe a lot like the DO335, I have sort of a special place in my heart for the XP55 ass ender. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I just, it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't an, an aircraft that saw great production. I think like three aircraft were made and eventually it was just kind of, it didn't meet uh, the performance expectations that they were looking for. I think it had some real like low speed uh, handling problems that were fairly dangerous and it just wasn't developed farther. But just like interesting aircraft, it just looks super cool. It's, you know, it's one of those aircraft that has a different propulsion setup. It's got a pusher prop and all this kind of stuff. A lot like the DO-335. It's just a single, this one's a single engine aircraft. But anyway, uh, I just think that's a cool looking plane. Uh, there's a lot, like you said, there's a lot that the Americans tried and developed that I don't even know much about. So this, uh, this effort to develop these beta cards, I'm not the expert uh, on a lot of these. I, I have very little knowledge of some of them, but as you as you dive in and start looking at some of these specific aircraft, you find out some really interesting things. I just uh, was reading some stuff that's not on our list for the American aircraft. The Moonbat, the XP-67, an interesting looking aircraft, but when you really start looking at how it was designed and some of its features, it's really pretty incredible. So uh, I'm, I'm going off the reservation again a little bit here on our list because we have a list of, you know, maybe 10 or so American aircraft that are, that we've, you know, sort of settled on as being good candidates for beta cards. The XP-67 is not one of them. However, man, as I start reading this thing, it's pretty cool. So I look at it and I think that kind of looks like a fat uh, meteor, but it's a, it's got these big props. And uh, I think the thing could hold like uh, 12, 50 cal forward firing. I think it was designed to be six thirty-seven millimeter, but it had, had firepower options as part of the design. I think it was uh six thirty-seven millimeter cannon or eight 20 millimeter cannon or 12 50 cal. I mean, I don't even know. I don't even know how you would stat that on a card for firepower, but that sounds kind of like a lot of business. Right? Yeah, exactly. We might need a new number for that one. It had, it had a, a, what do they call that? A laminar, laminar flow design with a fuselage. So everything's really smooth looking and it gave it a lot of internal space for fuel. So it could go really long range. I think that particular aircraft was designed to be a, um, uh, primarily designed to be a bomber interceptor. But then, you know, as, as the war was going on, it was kind of like, well, we don't really need that. It turned into like a bomber escort or perhaps an airstrike aircraft. So it had long legs because of the a huge amount of fuel it could, it could carry internally like that. And um, uh, the, the nacelles for the engines were designed in such a way that you could swap those out for jets because it was right on the cusp of the you know, jet, te jet technology. So anyway, this, it, it just seems like a really fascinating aircraft and it's one that did not even make the list. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, th I think it's, I think it's good, good, good point there as well is that, that many of these really excellent aerodynamic designs, um, just never made it into combat or never made the production in the end simply because the role didn't exist anymore, which is a real shame. Um, um, and also of course the, the advent of jet, Jet propulsion, uh, which basically was the death knell for the for, for, for the piston engine. So there's so many fantastic designs that were there that were maybe commissioned in '41 on and, and maybe first flew in, in in the later part of the war. Uh, unfortunately, just never never went into operational service because they just were no longer needed. Well, and let's be honest, some jets fell to that fate as well. So it's it's kind of funny. I was not. Expecting it to see on the list here, Brett, but you put the FH-1 Phantom in there, the Douglas Phantom. Uh, and I crack up, because that one, like you have a soft spot for the DO-335, I have a soft spot for the FH-1. 
and uh, obviously it's because uh, it was the first you know Marine jet fighter VMF one twenty two uh, my wife's squadron. Uh, they flew that. It was actually part of our Marine air demo team until we screwed it up so bad we had to disband our air demonstration team and <laughs> just left it to the Blue Angels. Uh, but it really was one of those jet aircraft that was orphaned by technology, that it was a first-gen uh, carrier-capable jet. It really wasn't that good, and it was only a fighter. And so all of a sudden you have competitions from things like the F-9F, the P-80, aircraft that are true fighter bombers, and it's just a technological dead end. You know, so so many of these, it's the aesthetic that gets me first, right? You know, we've talked before about that sort of atomic punk look that you get in aircraft design as oh, we get yeah, into the Oh, especially into the late 40s, early 50s. I love that atom punk look, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's, that's um, such a big part of this for me. You know, I think the first hook for me is, wow, look at that plane. What the heck is that? And it might be something that was completely impractical, failed horribly in tests, but it still... May make the list because it's just so cool looking. <laughs> yeah, I, I still laugh seeing the photo uh, that you dig up of the FH1 Phantom with the canopy open coming in to land on a carrier as a jet. That's kind of funny. That tells you uh, just how slow it was. Mm. I mean, I mean, as, as well, um, talking about the, the Phantom, how, how fast technology was going, so it was overtaken. Was you know one of the one of the things that obviously was the power of, of jet engines in the sense that not so much the power but whether you could actually uh, you know put on the power as quick as you wanted to, which obviously Absolutely. an aircraft carrier is, is important. You know, how there was a sort of a transitional element to try and get around that with the mixed power plant aircraft. So in, also in our list we got like the Ryan Fireball, which actually I was wondering serve. when you were going <laughs> to yeah, yeah, add that one in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I mean, it's a, I mean that's a cool idea. You know, well, okay, you can't rely on that jet for getting you off the deck. So let's put a prop on there as well. So you've got this mixed power plant idea. And, it's, um, and as, from what I understand, it was, it, was, it was, at the time, it was seen as a very good aircraft. The pilots enjoyed flying it. It was reliable. But simply speaking, within, within less than a year, engines had developed to the point where mixed power plants were no longer required. So a, a really cool-looking design you know, got consigned to the... Um, consigned to the to the dustbin oh yeah well i was i was glad to see brett put literally my favorite airplane on here my favorite prop airplane uh yes the f7f tiger cat and, and i laugh that people consider that a next plane uh because it was such a late war interwar airplane but those of us in the marine corps yeah that was our night fighter going into korea <laughs> while everybody else was starting to get night fighter jets uh yeah we're flying f7 tiger cats in that role so so brett why did that make the list well it's, it's just kind of one of those in that spectrum we talked about some aircraft that just didn't really make it to world war ii but they were certainly production aircraft if right. if later and um, it's funny you mention that because uh, there's that alternative uh, ready room for discussions like this. And I posted a video from another site of the, um, of the tiger cat. And somebody actually commented and said, you know, Hey, shouldn't this be, this is like, this is a production aircraft. Shouldn't this be on the regular ready room site? And I had to, you know, clarify and say, you know, the reason it, I put it here is because it's just an extension of a thought process I had about these X planes and yeah. how this was, you know, sort of on the cusp of that whole transition, you know? Well, if you've never seen one of them fly, they are, they're impressive. And I can think of at least three flying examples in the U.S. today that I off the top of my head. Uh, and, and it's an impressive airplane. So I can only imagine what it was like to get that airborne over the skies of Korea. Mm, a, a, a similar um, British design was the, um, was the Hornet. 
the uh, De Havilland Hornet, right. um, <clears throat> which basically, if you look at it, is like a scaled down single seat um, uh, Mosquito, but you know, with an incredible um, uh, amount of power. And I, I often go on about uh, you know one of one of the sort of famous British test pilots, Winkle Bra De, uh, Eric Brown, who flew so many different aircraft in his career, and he, he he's flown you know captured German stuff. He worked with the uh, the U.S. Navy on, on on evaluations and the like. And I asked him, I was looking to meet him, and I asked him what was his favourite plane and he mentioned the Hornet which says he basically could outperform a Spitfire on one engine it was just it was, <laughs> excellent it was just that good so again a similar thing it saw service just as as, as, the, as the Tiger Cat did but just too late for World War Two. yeah yeah absolutely well let's let's leave the United States and keep ourselves on track and on timeline and let's go talk about Japan so we alluded to the Shinden and talked a little bit about that uh, what are some of the other ones that are on there well, we've got the uh, Mizuno Shinryu. It's a rocket plane, and the Nakajima Kika. And Roger, you have to help me out, man. I'm not uh, the extent of my X-plane knowledge on Japan. Pretty much ends with hmm. the J7W. But <laughs> well, yeah, the the, um, <clears throat> the Shinryu is, is basically. I mean, you, you imagine it's a uh, almost like a low-tech uh, Me163. Um, so it was designed as a rocket fighter, point defense interceptor. You know, they were fully aware that the B-29s, once they, you know, once, once you've got Tinian and other places like that, that the Japanese homeland was going to be under severe attack. So it was a, an emergency fighter. So it's very much in the, in the realms of the, um, of the, of the ME-163. Um, there's also the Nakajima Kika, which a lot of people say, oh, it's just a Japanese copy of the ME-162. Format-wise, it looks very similar, twin engine, twin turbojets, um, not quite as swept as the, uh, as the, um, as the 262, but was, would probably have used German versions, uh, oh, sorry, Japanese-built versions of the, of the, of the Junkers engines, but um, it, was a, it was a domestic design. It, it, it may have been influenced a little bit, but it is not a straightforward copy. There's, there's some incredibly interesting um, designs um, that the Japanese were the Japanese were looking at because their aerodynamic again their their aero industry was very advanced, um, but again they got overwhelmed by events and, um, and 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 some of this stuff couldn't come to fruition. There's there's some excellent secret projects books out there on Japanese stuff, and um, you know some of it's incredible. Um, well, and and it couldn't be a direct copy because as as you allude, it's only the only sweep to the wing is the forward leading edge. There is no full sweep of the wing. So, yeah. hello aerodynamics one hundred and one. But I I also do chuckle because the first thing I notice when I look at it is just how far forward those underslung engines are, and wondering what a nightmare that had to be for center of gravity, <laughs> putting them that far forward of the wings. Unlike the two sixty two. Yeah, but I mean that's that's the other thing, isn't it? One of those uh, one of those sort of like myths about the two six two as being a you know specifically designed as a swept wing fighter. It was right. it wasn't. It was simply from a balance perspective the way the wings were were done. Later on, those ME two six two advanced versions they were talking about. Yes, they would take advantage of the swept swept wing. All right. Well, let's move on to UK experimentals. We've we talked a little bit about the Vampire. Then there's a whole long litany of other uh, airplanes, uh, conventional and otherwise, uh, that are on there. Yeah, I, I think um, the interesting ones, we've got um, three, three, three fighters that are basically piston-engined aircraft, so Martin Baker MB5, 
the supermarine sea fang and the and the navalized version of that which was which was the, sorry get it right way around the supermarine spikefall which would be in the RAF variant and the sea fang which would be in the naval variant so this was these were examples of aircraft that pushed the piston engine based design to its absolute limit so the so the sea fang and the spikefall were basically um, uh, spitfires with best engine they could possibly do in many cases contra-rotating props and a wing plan that was uh, that, that, that helped it handle sort of those getting towards those transonic speeds um, but and the Martin Maker MB5 was a, was a separate design by a company of course who then went out of aircraft production and just ended up producing probably the best ejector seats in the world I won't talk to Russians about that because I'll say something different but um, the MB5 was something that looks very similar to the Mustang in layout and and was clearly influenced by that but these were aircraft that would have been had the jets not come along would have been the ultimate in in piston engine fighters so in, in a way they are x-planes but they would you, you would imagine those in combat if for instance jet jet propulsion hadn't been as successful as it was if the meteor couldn't have been put into series production or whatever so th it's those sort of x-planes that where the rollers disappeared and but they but they just look so nice they're so sleek you just want to play with those games, <laughs> those, those games well, in your game. well, is, is that is the spiteful a really well-known aircraft in the uk i mean do kids certainly recognize it as oh yeah look at that that's the spiteful no no it was um it was uh no i would say the majority of people wouldn't know the spitfire it, it, has, has a tremendous thing in fact the spiteful went on there was a, a supermarine produced a, a naval jet called the uh, attacker which was a um, which I think was one of our first uh, operational jets off our carriers, and that was basically a spiteful with a jet engine. Um, huh. so they had exactly the same wings, the same armament loadout. The, the fuselage was different, obviously, because had to had to have a, a turbojet in there. But um, you know that, that that was where we went after the spiteful was we went to the supermarine attacker. But it's it's it they were they, these were he heavily developed aircraft. They would have, they could have slotted into combat in, 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 in the mid-1945, no problem at all. They'd been tested enough, uh, but they never went any more than, say, two or three production examples or so. Well, while the, the we're talking the, 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 beautiful, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, the spiteful looks to me like, you know, a Mustang and a Spitfire sat a little Had too a closely together <laughs> yeah. on the flight line, yeah, with some, you know, kind of cool space-age prop arrangement. That's kind of neat. Well, I was I was going to you know move on from the the beautiful aircraft that look like they are a weird mix to let's talk about the ugly airplane that looks like a mix the the fairy spearfish which looks like a TBM Avenger and a P forty seven had a baby. <laughs> Roger, how would you describe that airplane? Uh, I, I have to say the same. I have to say the same again. I don't think um, I, there's something about British naval aircraft. Um, there's a couple of them that look quite nice, but there was some sort of design problem. I always look at it that that that, that they were they may have been great on paper, but they were just incredibly unattractive. I, um, I think that is British naval aircraft design until at least 1965. I want to say until the adoption of of the Phantom from the U.S. Because uh, I was watching a great documentary about it, and there were so many aircraft I didn't even know were developed. And almost every one of them I looked at and said, how did that pass a design review with a pilot who said, I actually want to climb in and try to fly that airplane? Mm, mm. I mean, a similar, a similar thing of, of, of um, the Navy tended, unfortunately, to have to sort of say cast-offs 
of, uh, of what had been right. developed for the RAF. Uh, the um, the Sea Vixen, which I guess you may know, sort of the sweat wing version. Oh, of, but I love the Sea Vixen. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, I think that's beautiful. Yeah, I mean that was a, that was the DH one one zero, and that was going to be an RAF fighter as well. But they instead chose the Gloucester Javelin, which in itself was a absolute dog. But um, uh, it was it was a lot, a lot of the Navy stuff was was cast off. The Supermarine Scimitar, um, again, not a particularly good aircraft, but it's what the Navy ended up with. And uh, sounds I, I, familiar. The YF seventeen failure of the light fighter concept becomes mm-hmm. the F eighteen Hornet. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Sounds like a fine naval tradition. All right, so let's wrap this up pretty quickly. Let's talk quickly about the Russians uh, because you have a couple of Russian aircraft on their bread. Is there anything specifically you want to call out there before we move? Yeah, I had to uh, ask a uh, Russian plane collector, not actual plane, but Blood Red Skies player who collects Russian stuff and say, hey, you know, of, of these design prototypes, is there something that, you find particularly interesting that if there was a card or a plane available, you'd really want to add that to your collection. An I-270 uh, came out of that discussion. Uh, kind of an interesting aircraft. Um, Roger, you want to tell us more about the I-270? It's, it's, it looks to me like a Bell X-1. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a, very, it's, a, it's a very traditional, it's a very traditional design. Um, it, like... British designs and later American designs, it didn't have the advantage of being able to take, did not have be able to take advantage of taking, you know, sort of German um, aerodynamics research into account. So it was a bit of a brute force um, fighter, um, very conventional, you know, sort of in the sort of the meteor, Gloucester meteor type class. Um, And something that, you know, you possibly could have seen again, uh, introduced later in the war had the war gone on that length of time as being a sort of a, 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 a sort of workable uh, russian uh, jet fighter it seems interesting to me that they would design a point defense fighter late in the war i mean it just you know i could get that from the the germans and the japanese but to, to have a rocket powered point defense you know interceptor seems an odd design or uh, feature uh, choice well to me i reckon by that time the Russians or the Soviets were already looking towards the next opponent and they could see what you know American and British strategic bombing was doing to Germany and it's not a, it's not it's not far to imagine you know B-29s over Moscow or Leningrad or whatever so I, I think in some respects they were looking at the next war just as much as the one they were currently finishing off. Well I think it's funny because I had never looked up this MiG before uh, and I looked at it, and different than Brett, my thought wasn't, oh, well, that looks like a, a Bell X-1. I was like, that looks like the fattest L-29 I've ever seen, <laughs> which is really hilarious because when you look at the, the lines of the two aircraft, the L-29 trainer, you know, produced probably 15 years later, uh, is a jet slimmer version with a very similar airframe. Uh, so obviously somebody at some point proved that that uh, aeronautically that design worked and modified the tailplane a little bit. Uh, <laughs> then mass produced it in Czechoslovakia. Mm. And, and you can still see it in, in, in the way that the Russians arm their aircraft, you know, the heavy cannons, which we know were not particularly ideal for, for dogfighting. Yeah, um, yeah, twin 23s was not a dogfighting kind of uh, weapon. Yeah, and then with the MiG 15 and, and some of the earlier fighters as well, you stick a 37mm on there as well. And that was designed as a B 29 shredder, nothing else. That was what it was for. Um, so. Yeah, I, I do believe they really were looking towards that next conflict. Yeah, 
Yeah. Brett, do you want to discuss the Italian aircraft, their experimentals? Look, I have to admit, I didn't know the Italians were doing experimental <laughs> late war stuff. Right? I'm like, what lasted that long? But, they, you know, they did some interesting uh, propulsion ideas and counter-rotating prop things, even in twin-engine aircraft. Um, uh, the CA-183 comes to mind as a top contender for a uh, Italian, uh, you know, hypothetical class beta. But uh, I'm not sure there's a whole lot I can say about it because, look, I'm if you depart from Luftwaffe, my expertise on these airplanes starts to really fall off the fall off the cliff. <laughs> Roger, <laughs> well, our well, subject matter expert. <laughs> well, well, the thing about the Ital- the thing about the Italians, and you just look at their um, and their designs and everything through the from 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 the end of the First World War, basically. I mean, they they were very advanced. Um, you know, they were building some of the fastest aircraft in the world pre-war. I mean, you know, the the, the Schneider Trophy type uh, competitions that were going on. Um, so, you know, air and Italian aeronautical excellence is, is really can't be can't can't be doubted. And you know, some of the some of the designs. I mean. Uh, some of these are, uh, for instance, like twin Mustang type designs or P-38 type designs, so twin boom types. But they were, you know, they were developing a fighter. I can't remember which one of these it was, if it was one of these. is is basically, if you imagine, a single cockpit version of the uh, of the twin Mustang, the P-82. So it was a, um, the pilot was only... Yeah, that, that should be the SM-92, I believe. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, is, yeah, that's yeah. right. That, 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 that's right. And again, you know, that, that ability to have a, you know, a very heavy set of armament between the two fuselages. Um, but they flew. Oh, they, these designs flew. And, um, you know, by all accounts, were excellent aircraft. Um, but clearly, you know, the war, the war finished for them. So they, their industry was destroyed. They couldn't carry on. But again, in this sort of what if thing, in a different alternative reality where, you know, Italy had remained sort of intact and they developed these things, they would have probably, you know, kept, kept pace with, to a certain extent, certainly design concept, kept pace with the, uh, with the Allies and the Germans in, in quality of aircraft design. Um, so again, some of these, are, uh, you, you, you might want to fly these because they look so damn cool. Oh, yeah, the CA-183, the Caproni CA-183, that does it for me. It's just so cool. It's sort of one of the top contenders from looks anyway for this whole class of airplanes you know you've got the the funky counter rotating prop looking setup in the front and a jet in the back you know put that together with the the interesting uh italian paint schemes and you've got a you've got a stew right <laughs> yeah i, I look at that one because i i had never uh never really looked at it very much i'm like my god i have no idea what that airplane is trying to do <laughs> so yeah it is kind of interesting all right well so uh any other X-planes or aircraft we want to discuss uh, before we move on? Like I just say that uh, if you go to the alternative Blood Red Skies site, you know, not only occasionally posting interesting videos and stuff like we do on uh, Ready Room for, uh, you know, maybe more conventional aircraft, you'll see the same kind of thing for these kind of wild contenders here. But uh, also there is a post with a list uh, that uh, you can expect in some time to see uh, cards come out. For. So uh, I'll I'll go back to that site and make sure that list is updated. But we do uh, we do have a long list of over thirty aircraft to try to represent virtually every faction, uh, and it's it's in there if you have uh, if you want to see and, and comment on it. Mm, and I welcome anybody to to make some additions to that because the one thing we have found in looking at this is well 
you know, I, I'm, I'm finding something new more or less every day. I thought I'd got a lot of this stuff covered, but I get another book or another magazine article or something. And I go, oh, my goodness, look at that one. So, you know, the more the merrier. You know, it, it, it kind of opens the potential. I mean, when you think about how many, this is the first thing I noticed when we started looking at this idea. When you look at how many potential aircraft there are, whether they're on the drawing board or had some kind of limited operational capacity, it's a deep and long list of aircraft. And, um, I mean, you could almost have like a whole separate game of just these experimental planes and what they might do together. So I don't know, it's, it's exciting and it's fun. I'm learning a lot as I stumble through some of these, uh, aircraft I'd never really thought hard about. And, uh, there's a lot of really interesting stuff out there. Well, I, th- I think that is one of the toughest things the Blood Red Skies community has to address. And we've had the discussion about Korea, Vietnam, you know, other other eras. You know, do you define them as separate games? Do you allow people to play across uh, across eras? Do you allow people to field experimental aircraft uh, outside of an experimental aircraft game? Uh, those are tougher questions that are really outside the scope of this discussion. We'll probably talk about them on another episode. But I think that is something that we, as a community at least, uh, maybe with Andy's input, need to discuss and need to figure out how we how we draw some of those lines amongst eras or amongst uh, concepts of what kind of aircraft are acceptable in the game, uh, just not to make people angry. Even though I do like poking at people and making them uncomfortable and getting them all frustrated with me. Yes, yes, Brett, I am a troll. Uh, so, so that's, that's one of the things I think we have to talk about. Well, this definitely opens up another can of worms for another episode all about trading and statting aircraft uh, and some of the discussions that have been going on in the ready room about that. But we are sadly out of time. So, Roger, thank you very much for coming on tonight uh, and discussing this all with us. Oh, pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. Brett, thanks for being on. I realize it's uh, early morning for us in the States. <laughs> so uh, it's good to have you on there. And thanks for taking the time to talk. Happy to do it. It was fun. Absolutely. Well, everyone, please, uh, please go out there and give us your feedback. You'll see places you can tell us how totally wrong we got this, whether on Facebook, Instagram, or via the feedback on our website. We'd love to hear from everybody. And thank you very much for listening to the Lead Pursuit podcast. We will talk to all of you next week. I'm so jealous of this group. You guys are all sort of ex-military. The, the only difference between us and like your typical civilian is we swear a lot more yeah. and yes. uh, <laughs> we, we berate each other in a way that other people would find never so offensive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is so true. Don't worry, you could have a bad back and bad knees like all of us. <laughs>